Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Get on to our international news review. Joining us again in studio, I hope this becomes a regular thing, Steve Oaken. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Neil. All right, Steve, let's move on. Uh, we, we have to start with a serious topic, uh, all, all fun and, and uh, levity aside, and that is the, the gun issue in the States. President Biden was on the radio, on the TV uh, mm. this past week, making a, an official evening address. Now, this from the White House, this happens only when presidents have something very serious to discuss. They do a, an Oval Office uh, speech. Tell us about uh, what, he, what he talked about. President Biden asked the question, you know, and he said, for God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept in the United States? Uh, Meaning the guns. Meaning the guns, of course. There hasn't been any legislation passed by the Congress uh, since 1994. Um, We have had so many mass shootings and mass mass deaths in the United States. I mean, 200 this year. Alone, over 200. Since May 24th, when, when, you know, when Uvalde occurred, mm. there have been more than 20 mass shootings in the United States defined by having four or more people killed or injured. That's just since May 24th. And so the president came out, said we need to ban assault weapons. We need to ban high-capacity magazines. And then he also said, and of course, that's probably not going to happen, and and let's just get something done. Well, this is the point I was saying to Glenn off air. I don't know, call me naive and outsider looking in, but I was hoping that this one, and yes, we said this after Columbine and Sandy Hook, but this one, Steve, felt a bit different. It seemed to touch a a deeper nerve, perhaps, because it was so many children and it was such a widespread tragedy in a school. But are we just, have we just been here before and you expect no change? Look, I expect no change, but I hope maybe we can get a little something done because you've had just shooting after shooting after shooting with so many dead, innocent people. And and when it's school kids, that seems to move the Congress more. I don't know why it doesn't move the Congress more when you have 10, you know, black people killed by a white supremacist in in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just time after time after time. And what the Republicans are saying this time um, is that they don't want to restrict the rights of law-abiding citizens – when it comes to what they're going to do. And uh, Senator McConnell, who's the leader of of the Senate of Republicans, and remember it's a 50-50 Senate, he said that whatever gets done needs to be done consistent with the Constitution and the culture of most of the country. So when you put all of that together, you can hope (laughs) maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get some little incremental changes on background checks so that Mm. people like these 18-year-olds can't get the guns. Maybe you'll get some federal grants so states can put red flag laws in so that if somebody says, hey, I'm going to go shoot up a school or isn't it interesting when a school gets shot up, the police can go and take that person's gun away or make sure they don't buy one. That's what a red flag law is. Maybe we'll get these small incremental things. You're not going to see a ban on assault weapons like we saw in 1994. But why? Why why not, though? Why can't you ban assault weapons? I mean, to the rest of the world looking in, it seems a perfectly logical. You still maintain your amendment rights. You can still be armed. You can still carry weapons. You can still go hunting. And there, no, was, there was an assault weapon ban until... Nobody it, needs an assault weapon to take down a deer. So why? Be, because what the, the 
in, in particular, the, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, which is a, the biggest gun lobby in the United States. It's the most influential one when it comes to Republican. It's a single issue. They say if you do anything, this is the first step to having guns banned. And what, what the government wants to do and what the Democrats want to do is take your guns away from you. And so if we give an inch, they'll take a yard. And so it doesn't matter that, of course, you could say assault weapons should not be allowed under the Constitution. And that's why Mitch McConnell very, from his perspective, cleverly says we are only going to do what's consistent with the Constitution and the culture of most of the country. That's why he put that piece in. Mm -hmm. He can't stop with, we're just going to do what the Constitution says. Because that would mean requiring to uh, assemble a militia. (laughs) Right? Consistent with the Constitution (laughs) says you can regulate guns. I mean, look what happened. If if, if you go back to the 1930s and we had all of this gangland violence, remember, Mm. and we had somebody, you know, a a famous gangster, Machine Gun Kelly, Mm. right? Well, after all those killings, President Roosevelt came out, said, no more machine guns. Mm. And they banned machine guns back in, in, in the 30s through that gun legislation. Of course, this is consistent with the Constitution, Neil, to say you don't need an AR-15 to protect yourself. Yep. You don't need an AR-15 to hunt. But that's not the position the single-issue gun lobby is taking right now. And so that's why they're focusing on mental health and school safety and less on guns. Um, Steve, let's move on. Uh, sadly, we'll hopefully be, well, I know we'll be following this issue in days, weeks, months, and years to come. Uh, the, the chicken crisis, our uh, comedian friend uh, Faka Fuzz was just talking about, uh, in Singapore, Malaysia has uh, banned the export of chicken to Singapore for the time being. Now we've also got fuel prices spiking here, going over $4 per liter for the first time in Singapore for uh, the high-end fuels. Um, more and more of this is happening. There are a lot of reasons around it, not just one. We can't just point to Ukraine, for example, but, but there are supply chain issues. There are issues with uh, uh, the world getting back to normal, more or less, and just wanting and needing more of everything, uh, and, and, and the world has not been able to produce it or ship it around. What are you seeing in terms of what businesses are looking at in terms of all of these supply chain disruptions? Because uh, it's happened literally across every industry. Well, I mean, Malaysians' ban on, on chicken exports could backfire on them, right? Because this was an action that was done, right, because of domestic politics and a the policymakers perceived need to show the public in Malaysia that they're doing something to address the rising prices of chicken mm. in Malaysia, right? And as you said, why are, why are chicken prices going up? You know, it's because you've got av- uh, avian flu that's occurring in major producing regions. You've got swine flu because now where you have less pork, people are turning uh, to chicken as a substitute. You've got all the supply chain issues that are coming out of COVID-19. You've got a drought that has increased grain prices. You've got the Russian invasion in Ukraine, which is leading to rising cost of chicken feed in Malaysia. So, of course, the Malaysian government can't control any of that, but Mm -hmm. they want to be seen that they're doing something, so they ban the export of chickens. Well, what that tells business is, well, if you're going to set up a regional hub here, you are going to have to think twice because companies have done that. Companies have said Malaysia Mm -hmm. will be a great regional hub. Let's set up not just to feed Malaysians when it comes to chicken, but we're going to use this to export to Singapore. We're going to use it to export to Southeast Asia. We're going to use it to export to the Middle East. And so now if you're a business, you have to say, 
is this really a place that I want to have a hub because they could take these actions? And do you think a country like Singapore, quite resourceful, we saw it before with eggs, they'll soon find a different uh, source. I believe Thailand is being looked for, for chilled chicken. So is that another issue where eventually Singapore and other countries will find alternatives and therefore it will ultimately backfire for Malaysia? No, ex- exactly. You'll find alternatives and it'll be all of those things. And it may be, you know, using, you know, meat substitutes uh, it, for chicken and for beef. Mm. And so you have all of these substitutes that are out there and you have reading in the Singapore paper, right, people saying, I refuse to have frozen chicken coming in from Brazil. I only want the fresh chicken coming in from Malaysia. Well, maybe that will change. And so what's going to happen is that you might have a short-term political gain in, in Malaysia or any country where you do these types of bans, but one, you're going to lay off workers in Malaysia because there are a lot of workers employed in Malaysia who are not there to feed Malaysians, but to feed Southeast Asia in the Middle East. And then long term, are people going to say, you know what, I can't rely on Malaysia anymore. I need to make my supply chain more re- resilient. I need to diversify into different things besides poultry. So this is just it, – it's not – it's not smart long-term. Yep. It's just short-term. Well, a yep. comment from Mike Ung. I stopped choosing chicken and I take public transport. We do have a choice, not just complain. But Mike's point about public transport, even public transport relies on oil. Chicken, yes, it's serious, but oil is inescapable. I mean, my wife, we have a car, a very old car. It usually costs about $70-ish to fill the whole tank. It's a small, fuel-efficient car. It's now over 100. This affects every single Singaporean, doesn't it? Yeah, no, and that's why Singapore is ahead of most governments um, in terms of trying to figure out how are we going to move to renewables? How are we going to find a different way? Um, uh, Because the shocks that we're seeing on oil – from you know Russia and and what's happening in Ukraine and the bans there and then all of the the other capacity issues and the prices going up there's nothing governments can do about that I mean, it's not like Malaysia where this is they've made a conscious decision to say we're going to ban chickens there's nothing Singapore is going to be able to do in the short term or even the medium term about rising oil prices other than you've got to invest more in public transportation you're going to have to invest in in the EV infrastructure you're going to have it, invest in solar and as many other renewables as you can in Singapore. And, and look, Singapore is not going to have nuclear power. Mm, other governments yeah. may move towards that. Um, but that's what's driving all of this. So all of these ESG issues, right, and, and, and the, the intersection, or as I used to say, you know, the, the intersection of geopolitics and business now is just getting more and more intense. Well, here's an existential <sighs> question then on that uh, upbeat note. Is this the beginning of the end? Is this the point of no return for us moving away from fossil fuels? It it has to be uh, for political reasons, for economic reasons, and most importantly, for existential reasons on the survival of the planet. And so you're seeing a lot more move into sustainability, and you're you're seeing it with, you're going to see it with plastics bans, right? That the, the uh, you're going to see it with with the move away from oil. You're going to see it with incentives when it comes to renewables. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, there is some upside in the long term from all of these crises that we're dealing with simultaneously. 
We would like some upside. Yeah, <laughs> some you know, upside actually, Niall Bowie in the Asia Times has an excellent article just posted yesterday about what's happening in Malaysia vis-a-vis politics and the politics of chicken. Oh, and, there's, there's and politics shortages. of play as well. Yeah, and one of the one of the interesting uh, facts that he puts in there is is Malaysia, for example, is a net food importer. They don't even make all the food that their country needs, which to me just is shocking mm. given all the natural resources that, that Malaysia has. But uh, that's, a, that's a topic for another day because we've got to move on to Neil's queen. Don't stop. Celebrating <sighs> her time on the throne. What a joyous jubilee it has been. I was in such a good mood <laughs> until you brought up this, this constitutional, uh, okay. unconstitutional relic okay, of the bygone era. Your anti-monarchist uh, views not, aside. Yes, okay. Well, all right. Before I throw it to Steve, yes, it's the <laughs> platinum, platinum, I can't even say it, platinum you don't jubilee. You want to say it. 70th anniversary uh, of a woman of her. inherent entitled privilege. Oh, uh, yes. Well done for staying alive <laughs> and uh, living off the state for the best part of 70 years. Congratulations. Steve, uh, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, I thought, Neil, that you would you would be your usual optimistic self looking on the bright side and that you would have seen that, that Prime Minister Boris Johnson got booed Brilliant. when he went into the uh, the Thanksgiving uh, session. Yeah. So, so I figured you'd have, you'd have looked at that. I mean, look, this is... You and know, Meghan Markle got the biggest cheer of the day. So it'll be very interesting how the British tabloids spin that. How did she get... What was that? I missed that. Just when they walked into the... Oh, into it was a, a, a low-key because yeah. technically they're not part of the official royal family anymore, right? Course, yeah. So Prince Harry, uh, Harry and Meghan Markle turned up, got one of the biggest cheers of the day. And, of course, the right-wing tabloid media of the UK, mm. particularly the Rob, Rupert Murdoch-controlled media, very anti-Meghan Markle, yep. very anti-Prince Have been Harry. for years. But, yeah. you know, but this is the job, right, of the Queen and the monarchy. You've got such problems in, in, in the UK right now, and you've got issues. Is Scotland going to remain part? Is What's going to happen with, with uh, uh, Northern Ireland and, mm. and the, 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 the parties that are starting to take power there and you've got party gate of course so this is a this is an excuse to look away from all of that right mm. this is a way mm. to 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 take your eyes off of the problems and celebrate a a woman who has reigned longer than anyone in the history and it'll probably never UK. happen again yeah no that is a very ca- uh, smart point that steve makes there yes it is a di- uh, distraction because he is facing a revolt within his own conservative party the numbers are growing if it reaches a point of no return there could be a vote of no confidence boris johnson doesn't want that obviously you're absolutely right the cost of living is through the roof inflation is through the roof the fallout from the word that... I mean, the word Brexit has become like Voldemort in Harry Potter. He yeah. who cannot be named. The right-wing media are not allowed to use the word Brexit anymore. <laughs> so they'll blame it on Ukraine. They'll blame it on COVID. They'll blame it on this. They'll blame it on foreigners. But he's abs- uh, Steve is absolutely right. It's a useful distraction for much more serious issues. Yeah. The crown alone, apparently, is worth between £3 billion to £5 billion pounds of pillaged, pillaged uh, diamonds, sell it and feed the poor. <laughs> Look, uh, I, I, I don't have a dog in this fight, as you know, not even a corgi. Yeah, um, not even, that's a good one. But, yeah. but, but, uh, but I will say that from a completely outside point of view, I understand the, the challenge around paying for the monarchy and the, the real estate, the upkeep, the, all that stuff. And I know that's a huge issue uh, in the UK against the, uh, the anti-royalists. 
But I will say, I like the Queen. I'm not anti-royalist. I, I'm just playing around. Well, no, I'm, I'm genuinely no, but, not anti-royalist. But there are some really serious questions around there are. how much of the British purse is spent on the royal correct. family and is, is there value correct. to that? In terms of selflessness and devotion to duty, yep. there's been no one greater. for. Se- and can you imagine what her data bank must be like. She has had private sessions with every prime minister every Friday, I believe, since Winston Churchill. She has had private discussions with every American president, going back to Eisenhower, I think. So, oh, you'd love to be a fly on the wall. We can't leave this discussion without a mention of of Neil's very snarky quote, which kind of said, wasn't it very convenient for Prince Andrew to get COVID now? Uh, There was no way he was ever going to go even without COVID. (laughs) Well, as I said, it's been the only positive news about (laughs) All All right, Steve, thanks so much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.